Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. Let's get started. So last time, we started, well, finished, talking about the Catholic international relations and the reinstatement of Wallenstein, which was definitely a boon as it reinvigorated the Catholic forces. And before we get to the main topic of today, I want to just cover the death of Tilly, as I mentioned it last time. Like I mentioned before, he died on April 30th, 1632, at the age of 73. His tomb is actually at Altoting in Upper Bavaria, if you ever want to visit that. And for his actual death, he was injured by an arquebus bullet at the Battle of Reims and died two weeks later of osteoporosis from a shattered thigh. He was a key part of the war effort of the Catholics up to this point, and led to several major victories, including White Mountain, or crushing the Danish throughout their war. He was very good at commanding armies and how to maintain them, and he could even maintain control over two different commands, which was impressive, especially at the time with the lack of communication technology. He was one of the best commanders of the war, and I can immensely respect him for his success throughout the war, and it's kind of sad is wrong, but... Actually, sad might be appropriate, that his last major battle was his crushing defeat at Brettenfeld. But that's sometimes how the coin lands. He wasn't a bad commander, Gustavus was just a better one. I will say that he will be mentioned in some episodes, for the next couple maybe, but I just want to put this here as my sort of commentary on him. But with his death covered, we will start with the, well, we will go on to the main topic of today, which is the war continuing. 1632 was considered one of the high points of the war for just the destructiveness of it. The armies were the largest up to this date, both sides having around 100,000 troops or more. Several battles were fought over this year, including Bamberg, the Lech, Steinau, Altvest, and Lutzen, which showed how far the spread of the battle and the war was at this point. Those battles will be covered in detail later, or many of those, but for now, we are continuing on the bigger picture. Resources had to be stretched to cover a wider area, making it harder to concentrate troops, and places with large armies made supplying that army harder due to the incessant demand of an army. This would mean that the war became focused on several regions in Germany, with the reliance on German allies to try and scatter enemy armies from both sides of the coin. The Catholics relied on it, and the Protestants relied on it. And since both sides were operating several armies at a time, field battles became more and more common. The more roaming armies you have, the higher the chances there will be major field engagements. This was a change from older time periods in Europe, at least from the medieval period, which, for one, had less men, so there's less of a chance for large battles, so any army that was significant-sized tended to be maybe engaged in battle, but a lot of times it tended to result in a siege more than anything else. So this was kind of a major change in the face of warfare in Europe, whether you call it an evolution or a revolution in warfare. So warfare began to center on local garrisons and small raids and avoided big field battles as the numbers began to drop off in these armies by 1635. Many of these garrisons were reinforced by regiments, and with them, they would take small amounts of territory and resources to maintain themselves on top of existing contributions. These garrisons could act as bases for supplying larger armies if they're in the area, as well as being able to act as a base for them to gather up troops, plant intel, all that sort of thing. They were also able to supply reinforcements and artillery to armies, which would be significant, especially in the face of bigger battles. For the Imperials, their war effort was focused on defending the Habsburg hereditary territory. They were mainly focused on defending Bohemia and Silesia, as they were the key to moving resources throughout Imperial territory, as well as being major money suppliers throughout the war effort. The Catholic League was focused on Bavaria, with occasional pushes into Swabia and Franconia, 
The other area where the Catholic League was more focused on was Westphalia, where the Westphalian army I mentioned much on the podcast was gathered under Pappenheim. Any other League forces were positioned on the left of the Rhine, guarding against potential Dutch intervention, and around 10,000 others were scattered to the east. So the war was still in the favor of the Swedes at this time, but the progress was slower and it was at standstill places. Gustavus couldn't be everywhere, even if he had talented field commanders under him. With the Westphalian forces... Pappenheim led a successful campaign against the Swedes. While the Swedes initially had 50,000 men, which were all made up of Hessen and Saxon levies, the two German factions were divided due to rivalry and acted at cross-purposes many times. It didn't help that Gustavus tried to direct the war through Messenger, and then he later took 20,000 men from them to reinforce his own forces. So, Pappenheim seeing that misdirected his enemies and claiming he had 10,000 men when he could only get around 3,000 from his garrisons. In January 1632, he rescued 3,500 men from Magdeburg and took the best cannons, throwing the rest into the river and blowing up the fortifications, making it useless to the Protestants. This city was not having fun. After the fire and this, I can see why it took so long to rebuild it. He later surprised and beat the Protestants at Hoxter in March, and then evacuated the garrison at Stade, which only reinforced his army. He wasn't necessarily taking new territory, but he managed to recover men and shore up his own defenses to hold out against them, which in a defensive war is more important than grabbing new territory. He knew he could do the disunity of the Protestants to keep that region contained, knowing that going on the offensive was very risky and a big battle could destroy his army that he was building up. On another part of the war front, in the southwest of Germany, command fell to the Tyrolean administration at Innsbruck. Isolated garrisons kept Alsace from falling completely to the Counts of Mainz in the Rhinish army. The other garrisons held strong positions in the Black Forest, making the approach to Alsace hard. And adding on to that was a few walled imperial cities, which made it even harder to take the region, along with the fact that these cities could supply defenders and other imperials in the area, or Catholic or League forces. One issue in that region was Ferdinand could not reliably supply these men and bring them supplies, which left much of the defense up to local militia, because getting men here was just as hard as getting supplies. So while they were holding out, the next region I'm going to focus on is the Tyrol lands and Austrian lands held by Archduke Leopold. He died in 1632, so his command fell to his wife, Princess Claudia of Tuscany, who acted as a regent for their son. She was an able leader, and her political and military maneuvers were not assisted very often by Vienna, so she was often left on her own to do things. She was focused on regional offense, taking advantage of the disunity of her opponents, doing the same things Pappenheim is doing, probably with relatively less skill, although she could have had good commanders under her, but it seemed to work and able to hold off the Protestants. The city of Wurttemberg was another key example, as it was a major city that wanted to maintain neutrality in the war, and even tried to negotiate with Swabia and Bavaria. But in May 1632, Gustavus put pressure on them to sign an offensive treaty which promised them the restoration of their monarchy and giving them back the fief of Furstenberg, assuming they agreed to become a Swedish fief, the city itself. Julius Friedrich, who was the regent of the city, did not expect to keep those lands, but he saw them as a bargaining chip that he could use to revoke the restitution the imperials put on the Protestants, so he agreed. And like many others I covered before, he fought his own war, which was focused on gaining local territory without Swedish support, although he did lack the firepower the Swedes did, having only around 6,000 men and a small amount of cannons, which was not really enough for a full siege, or even field battle for that matter. But by this point, resistance had become stiffer, and Catholics were less likely to surrender without a fight, knowing they'd be faced with persecution hearing the news from the rest of Germany, although, like I said in other things, some of it was exaggeration, some of it was truth, but they couldn't have known that. The Catholics were actually beginning to find new resolve and were holding the Swedes back better, which was probably helped by 
the early year of 1632 being winter, which is a slow time for any army, but especially larger armies. This was exemplified when Horn broke neutrality with Bavaria when he attacked Bamberg, and the city was actually abandoned by League forces, but the local militia, buffered by remaining veterans, held out for nine hours till their ammunition ran out and were forced to surrender. And even then, the Swedes weren't able to control the region around Bamberg, as the towns of Kronach and Forkheim repulsed all attacks without the war to take them. It was the same with Villingen near Württemberg, as it was impregnable to the Swedes. So the war hadn't turned, per se. The Swedes were still in the advantage. But the Catholics were bolstered militarily and in terms of morale. Bamberg will be covered next week, along with several other battles, so don't you worry about that. But either way, the war was about to intensify, and several battles were about to be fought, which I will be covering next week, so hope you guys are excited for that. I want to thank you all for listening in and hope you are enjoying the podcast. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3decot at gmail.com. Reminder that I have Patreon and thank to those who support me and to review and spread the word. And I'll see you guys next time. Mm-hmm.